Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and thank you for joining me on another glorious Tuesday. We are currently wrapping up a series called The Cold Case Road Trip every Tuesday here on the Murder Bucket podcast. If you're new here or have listened from the very beginning, let me just briefly explain. The Cold Case Road Trip is a series where we travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories, and explore a cold case from two locations each week. Including tonight's episode, we have five episodes remaining in this series. We are on stops 46 and 47, and we will be traveling to Louisiana and New Hampshire. But as always, let's do a week-slash-weekend recap. Friday, September 24th, marked our one-year podcast anniversary, and I hosted, well, I tried to host a Twitter Live that didn't go so well, so instead, we headed on over to Instagram and hosted almost a two-hour live there, and let me tell you, it was wonderful. We had several people get on the live, asked questions, get feedback on things. We talked about the Gabrielle Petito and Brian Laundrie case, which, of course, once all of that is wrapped up, I will discuss at some point. And all in all, we just had a really great time. Now, if you would like for me to do any more Instagram or possibly try again for a Twitter Live, just let me know in the comment section on the post for tonight's episode. This past Friday, I went over to a friend's house with, of course, my husband and daughter and celebrated one of my best friend's birthdays. We had really delicious food. We played games. We had a bonfire. And it was, all in all, a great time, especially since now it's October and it's getting a little chilly in the evenings. So a bonfire is just fantastic. And then Saturday, we went over to another friend's house for another bonfire, but they had kind of like a a backyard block party get-together where they also had food and games, but then they had their family members, which was a husband, the brother-in-law, and the father-in-law all playing live music. And let me tell you, live music at nighttime under trees that have been wrapped in lights is just different. It just hits differently. And we enjoyed it so much, and I can't wait for them to have another one. 
Sunday afternoon, we spent a lot of time making meals for a friend of mine at work who is having her third baby. So I decided to make her a lot of freezer meals so that when the new baby comes, her and her husband don't have to worry about what they're going to feed themselves, let alone what they're going to feed two growing boys. And then Monday at work was actually very fascinating. We have a new system that is coming out for the work that I do, and we got to have our first training session on it. My little tiny nerd brain is very excited about this, only because I really like new things. I like learning how to use something new, and using our old system has just kind of become really mundane. This old system will lock you out all the time, and you have to restart it, or it'll just glitch and take something out that it's not supposed to take out. And also, I believe this system is from like 1980 or 1990. I know when one of my supervisors was actually starting at my job, they had the system there. And my supervisor just retired with 30 years of service. So it was time to get a new system. And I I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Now, we were going to train like every other day, but then they decided we were going to train every day, and that just gets me giddy. But anyways, enough about me. Let's go ahead and get into tonight's episode. Stop 46, Louisiana. 58-year-old Barbara Blunt was on the phone with her neighbor at 11.30 a.m. on May 2, 2008, in Holden, Louisiana. She told her neighbor that she was cleaning out her kitchen cabinets. This was the last time that anyone heard from her. Her nephew decided to go check on her when he hadn't heard from her all day. When he arrived, he noticed that the front door was wide open, all the windows were open, and the house phone was on the floor with the battery pulled out. The pots and pans were stacked on the kitchen floor. He immediately called the police and reported her missing. When the police arrived, they noticed that there were no signs of forced entry and the back door was open as well. All of her valuables were left in the residence, so it didn't appear to be a robbery. They believed that she was lured from her home by someone she knew. Several hours later, at 4.15, her 2006 silver Toyota Camry was found abandoned a quarter of a mile from her home. When the police searched it, there was water on the floor of the vehicle that was due to the heavy rain that occurred that morning. Her keys were found buried in the gravel 20 yards in front of the car. When the floodwater subsided the following morning, many volunteers combed the woods on foot and horseback. They searched for several days amid the hazardous weather conditions. Over the years, the same area was searched by cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar. Hunters walked through the woods on occasion, but nothing has ever been found. Now, there were two witnesses Terry and Wes Collins, that told police that they saw Barbara within minutes of her abduction, 
standing on the dirt road where police had found her car. They claim that they saw her talking to a man who has never been located. In an article on HammondStar.com, Terry is quoted saying, We saw her standing in the misting rain. She had her keys in her hand and something else. I really thought it was her glasses, but I can't be sure. Wes then goes on to say, We came around the curve and we were pulling our camper. We had to slow in that curve and that's really how we happened to see her as closely as we did. The two described the man wearing mirrored sunglasses, like state troopers used to wear, and he had light-colored hair that was either blonde or bleached and had a bowl cut and his face was thin. Terry and Wes were traveling through Louisiana back to their home in Alabama. Shortly after they arrived, Terry saw a post on social media regarding Barbara's disappearance, and even though they didn't know her personally, they decided to call the police department and let them know what they saw. They also gave them a perfect description of Barbara. The police requested them to return to Louisiana to escort detectives to the scene where they saw her. The location was confirmed by police to be the exact same location to where her vehicle was discovered. Barbara became a widow in 2004 when her husband Jr. died in an accident. He drove a gasoline truck that was owned by the Lard Oil Company. On the morning of June 25, 2004, he picked up more than 8,000 gallons of fuel. He then crossed the railroad track in front of a Norfolk Southern freight train. The train hit the tanker, lifted it up, and turned it on its side. This resulted in an explosion that sent flames between 50 and 60 feet in the air. The accident killed Junior, the train engineer, and the conductor. There is a theory that Barbara's disappearance might have been related to her husband's death. Many people on the locomotive union blame Junior for the accident. They believe that the two employees were murdered. In 2018, Livingston Parish Police sought the public's help in solving the mystery regarding Barbara's disappearance. In an article on TheAdvocate.com, Livingston Sheriff Jason Ard urged anyone with information to come forward. He is quoted saying, Someone knows something and we're asking if you know something to come forward. Even if you know that you have given us information already in the past, give it to us again. This case is very important to us. During this press conference, Sheriff Ard was joined by three of Barbara's relatives who also asked the public to help them bring closure. Sheriff Ard stated that he planned on retesting DNA samples that were taken from her car. He went on to say that they believe that she was lured from her home by someone she knew because there were no signs of forced entry or a robbery. After doing extensive research and emailing several journalists with no answers, I was unable to determine if the DNA samples that were retested had ever come up with anyone's names. Now, over the years, several leads came in that were followed up on, but nearly all of them were dead ends. 
Sheriff Ard is quoted in the same article saying, We have some pretty good suspects, but we won't name any names because we don't know conclusively who is responsible. That's not to say that they're not on our radar. We watch and gather whatever information we can. Sarah Bauman, who is Barbara's sister, is quoted saying, I just can't explain the hurt and agony that we've been through. To try to sleep at night and wake up with her, seeing her face hollering, help me, help me, what can I do except turn to God and pray? Barbara was described by her family as a cautious individual who didn't open the door to strangers. She carried a gun when she went outside to milk her cows. Her two children lived on the same road as her, and she cooked them dinner every day. She drove her sister to medical appointments and was very active in her local church. At the time, Barbara was last seen wearing shorts and a tank top. She was roughly 5 foot 5 and weighed between 135 to 150 pounds. If you have any information regarding Barbara's disappearance, you are encouraged to contact the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office or the Greater Baton Rouge Crime Stoppers. Before we head into our second stop, please take a moment to listen to a word from our sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. With Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're facing the same problem as me. Finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your spouse, your nephew, or to bring to a work holiday party. There are so many things out there to choose from. But if you want to give something unique, I have the solution. It's called Unidragon. Expertly crafted wooden puzzles. I own the Charming Owl Puzzle. When it first arrived, I was completely blown away. Unidragon tells you that each piece has its own unique shape and they aren't wrong. They mention the incredibly vibrant colors of each puzzle and it will amaze you when you see one in person. The reasons why so many people love Unidragon puzzles is because it's interesting for adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box and new puzzles are released every month. Unidragon has given Murder Bucket listeners their very own promo code. When you go to unidragon.com and enter promo code BUCKET, you will receive 10% off. So get your shopping list done early this year by visiting unidragon.com and selecting one of their gorgeous puzzles. And we're back with Stop 47, New Hampshire. 40-year-old Curtis Fishon was a police officer in Concord, New Hampshire for 10 years until he was forced to retire due to a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis in 1994. The police department gave him a couple years of full salary and benefits. This didn't help him to be motivated to find new work. Curtis spent a lot of his time drinking and keeping to himself. While at one job, he was fired for showing up to his shift with alcohol on his breath. In December of 1998, he got a job with a private security company, Reliable Security Guard Agency. He was assigned to the third shift at Venture Corporation. 
they manufactured plastic parts for vehicles. In the early morning of July 5th of 2000, Curtis disappeared while on shift. He arrived at work around 9.30 and parked his green Mercury Topaz in his usual spot. He then took his position in his guard station. At around 2 a.m., he made a call to the Seabrook Fire Department to report his vehicle was engulfed in flames. He told the firemen that he saw a large amount of smoke and flames, grabbed an extinguisher, and tried to put it out himself. Obviously, he was unable to do it on his own. The deputy fire chief was unable to find a cause for the fire. There were no signs of arson, accelerants, or accidental ignition. Many of the firemen told police that Curtis didn't seem upset about the fire, which they were surprised by because he kept most of his treasured possessions in his car. When the fire department left, Curtis made an entry in the logbook regarding this incident. His supervisor spoke with him over the phone regarding the same fire and reported that his behavior was nothing noteworthy. Several of his co-workers noticed that he was walking around the building shortly after the incident, which wasn't normal for him because of his MS. At 3.45, a co-worker came to the guard station to find it empty. Curtis was nowhere to be found. His cigarettes, lunch, and contact lens solution were inside. One of his co-workers mentioned to the police that they saw two unidentified vehicles speeding out of the plant's parking lot at around the same time. They are unsure if this had anything to do with Curtis's disappearance. The area surrounding the manufacturing plant was searched, but no signs of Curtis were found. Police immediately suspected suicide because two days prior, Curtis paid his father $200 to purchase a gun that he had sold him several years prior when he was having financial difficulties. He had a legal permit to conceal carry. It was a noteworthy theory due to the depression he suffered and his alcohol abuse, but his family don't believe the police's theory of suicide. They stated that he often mentioned that he feared for his personal safety and that he claimed a co-worker had threatened him. Current police chief Michael Gallagher is quoted in an article on MurderSheTold.com stating, A couple of things happened that night. One was that the car was caught on fire, and number two, which we discovered later, was that there were vending machines and a change machine that was broken into using a forklift on the property. Now the police believe that the car fire might have been a diversion for the break-ins. On the charlieproject.com, it states that several people speculated that his disappearance might have been related to his previous job as a police officer. There were several reports that he had affairs with two of his officers' wives, but no evidence has ever turned up to support this theory. Curtis's family was invited by the Seabrook Police Department to do a walkthrough of his apartment at the Highland Inn. While there, they noticed that his fridge was stocked with food, and underneath clutter, his gun was found wrapped in a paper bag 
which dispelled the theory of him committing suicide. In 2005, Chief Gallagher, who was a detective sergeant at the time, said he got an anonymous tip to look into the people who worked at Venture Corporation the night of Curtis's disappearance. After doing research of that evening, Chief Gallagher stated that normally there would have been over 100 employees working 24 hours a day inside the factory, but that week was considered a shutdown week, meaning many people were on vacation. There were only about 12 workers there, and most of them weren't regular venture corporation workers. Most of them were part of a cleaning crew. In an article on SeacoastOnline.com, Chief Gallagher believes that there were workers there breaking into the vending machines when Curtis came upon them. He's quoted saying, There had to be some sort of struggle ensued. I don't believe they set out to murder Curtis, but I believe that was the result. In 2008, 40-year-old Robert April was arrested for assaulting David Horvitz. In an arrest affidavit, he threatened to kill David's brother because he owed him money. He told him that when he saw his brother next, he was going to slice his throat and no one would ever find his body just like the missing person from Seabrook. He told David that he killed the missing Seabrook person and that his brother was going to be next. He went on to state that he buried him in his front yard. Because of this interaction with David, It implicated him for the disappearance of Curtis. Robert April was then named as a person of interest. David recanted his statement while on the witness stand in 2009. When questioned, he denied ever receiving threats toward him or his family. The charges against Robert were then dropped. Chief Gallagher questioned Robert several times over the years, but he hasn't provided any relevant information regarding the case. When Chief Gallagher asked him to take a polygraph, Robert refused. Curtis's family launched the Find Kurt campaign, offering a $5,000 reward and opened a tip line. Several tips came in that were similar and had very dark details. The callers gave names, and those names were consistent with other tips that the police had. In April of 2008, Curtis was declared legally dead. In 2010, the police went to a home in Seabrook to excavate an area where a pool once was. No remains were found. On SeacoastOnline.com, Curtis's sister, Crystal, remembers the dig as very emotional. She states, Something like that will come up. It does bring it all right back. We were sitting on the edge of our seats. Is this the time they're going to figure it out? And then there's the huge letdown. But it wasn't a surprising letdown at this point. It's been, for whatever reason, difficult for the police to find some kind of traction. As of 2015, The reward for any information leading to the recovery of Curtis's body, arrest, and conviction has been raised to $10,000. On the webpage of findkurt.com, a statement from 2020 says this, 
20 years isn't an anniversary any of my family wanted to be remembering. 20 years since Kurt disappeared. 20 years since he was killed. 20 years since we've spoken to our brother, son, and uncle. It's 20 years of almost silence from the authorities. 20 years of Seabrook harboring and enabling murderer. The number of people assigned to his case has changed probably 20 times too. None of them cared enough to contact us when they took on the case. None of them cared enough to follow up when we called with tips that we received. Was any of the information we received and shared true? They said they follow up on everything. But did they? 20 years his killer has lived. 20 years of being with his family when Kurt could not. 20 years of laughing, eating, drinking, driving, working, and terrorizing. Would Kurt have made more of his life in those 20 years than his killer? He certainly would have lived to find better treatments for his MS, which would have given him more options in life. One thing is certain. If Kurt had been there in the last 20 years, no one would have feared him. No one would be injured or killed by him. Comparing the 20 years that could have been and the 20 years that were, there is only one that clearly ranks higher. The world would have been better with Kurt in it than it is without him. The same cannot be said for his killer. Curtis Pichon's disappearance is Seabrook, New Hampshire's only unsolved case. At the time of his disappearance, Curtis was last seen wearing a reliable security uniform colored light blue over dark blue and boots. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Curtis Pichon, you are encouraged to contact the Seabrook Police Department. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Before you go, please check out this promo from my friends at All Crime No Cattle Podcast. Hi, True Crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day!